Entrepreneurs can get stuck in their head, challenged by their thoughts, the voice in their head, and their beliefs. We chat with successful entrepreneurs who share their journey and the lessons learned along the way. The Add Valued Entrepreneurs podcast is edutaining, leaving you with actionable advice to transform your life and create a thriving business that aligns with your values and goals. Our conversations are for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life they desire. You deserve it. It is possible. It's time for you to add value. Our guest today is Sherry Prindle. Sherry's a pioneer in the training and development industry. Sherry's delivered over 4,000 seminars across 50 states, six countries in three languages, and over 75 different subjects. At least 1,200 professional speakers and coaches credit Sherry for helping them launch successful careers. Having lived in Japan for four years and Russia for three years, she enjoys traveling, camping, hiking, singing, and team trivia competition. Sherry Prindle and I share a love of travel and language learning. So much of language learning and culture is a metaphor for personal growth and development. She is a master coach, certifying coaches, speakers, and trainers, and empowering them to build their businesses. And she has so much wisdom to share. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to a great conversation and just looking forward to learning. It's always fun because when you talk to somebody new, even if like you're the one teaching, it's like the reason I train is because I always learn too, especially talking to someone kind of new. So this is exciting for me too. Fantastic. Well, obviously you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're building your own business. Um, how did you get started? Where? Tell us a little bit about your journey. So it's funny. I just grew up, you know, normal middle class, uh, just uh, Midwest girl. And my sophomore year of college or my freshman year of college, my work study assignment was to tutor the international students at our college. So that my sophomore year, I decided to be an international student. And I went to Japan and was an exchange student for a year. And when I realized that there was this whole world out there that was completely oblivious to all the things that I thought were were the world, right? And that there was all this big world out there, then there was no stopping me. So I graduated and went and lived in Japan for five years and then went to Russia and lived in Moscow for four years. Um, I did some TV and radio in those places and then came back and it just wasn't going to work for me to just go into a company and work a job every day. It just, it, it ruined me for normal, right? <laughs> so like Jack Canfield and several other well-known speakers and life changers, I actually started out doing these seminar companies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Fred Pryor seminars. Yeah. So I literally, I was living in Dallas and there was an ad in the newspaper that said they were looking for Fred Pryor seminar leaders. And I had always been paid to speak. I was in debate and forensics in high school and drama and then did the TV and radio overseas. And it was like when I taught my first seminar, I could hear almost an audible click like this is exactly it. So nice. What a, what a wonderful feeling, right? To, yes. To get that click. So I love that uh, that you love to travel. Um, the Marine Corps planted a travel bug in me, and, and I've had the opportunity to speak and teach um, around the globe in, in various options and, and definitely understand the idea of seeing the world as a bigger place and and not being tied down to uh, to one location in the middle of, you know, the Midwest. <laughs> so, so, so I love that. And 
tell me a little bit more about TV and radio in Japan and Moscow. Like those, those sound like <laughs> I know, right? Oppositions. So the really cool part is that back in the '90s when I lived in Japan, it was really prosperous there. And oh my goodness, people would pay $50 an hour to just talk to you. It was called English conversation class, right? So at first I was I was there as an exchange student and then I went back as just a tourist visa uh, and then started working in some language schools, right? Teaching English as a second language and not just the conversation. I really got into the teaching part. I, I was learning how to become a good teacher. Um, in fact, the Japan Association of Language Teachers had me come in and do presentations for them, even though they were all accredited teachers and I just had a BA in communications, right? Um, and <laughs> so I, 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 my Japanese got good. It turned out that I had a good ear and I, I, I wonder, it, well, do people ever learn that? Like if you never learn another language, I don't, you could have a great ear and not even know it, right? But it turns out that I have a, a real aptitude for language. So when I speak Japanese or at that time anyway, Lots of times, if I was on the phone, they didn't know I wasn't Japanese. Wow. So, yeah. So, there was a call for that, like a young American blonde that spoke Japanese to the degree that her accent was unrecognizable. So, I heard a rumor that a local television station was looking for an American to help to help him with a documentary. So, I called the guy, and the date we the day we had an appointment, he had, he had other people lined up to interview. But the day he met me, he hired me, and I traveled around the United States with a Japanese camera crew for 40 days uh, making a documentary that was called A Documentary of the USA, Sherry and Osamu's Quarrelsome Journey. And Osamu Nakamura was a TV news newscaster in Japan at the time. And they wanted to see how we reacted to things differently. They're fascinated by cultural differences, generally, like you and I just said we were. Uh, so with that television station, I got to do a lot of other things. We ended, I ended up assistant directing through three more documentaries for them and doing some TV cultural programs and being one of those roving news reporters, the whole bit. Nice. Well, definitely sounds like an interesting documentary, right? Like looking for the, the opposition or the argument in, in traveling for across the United States. And so that in itself sounds interesting. So then how did you end up from Japan to, to Russia? This is my favorite story. So Japanese people are very complimentary of Americans. Whenever you even attempt to speak a little Japanese, they say, oh, like they say such nice things to you all the time. So as a result, <laughs> the, I had met a lot of Americans who I'm going to say stayed too long in Japan or 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 got there too early. And I, they lost track of the fact that you're not this cool other places. <laughs> so I don't, and I don't even mean that as an insult to them. I just remembered seeing that and thinking, oh no, I'm too young to get disillusioned into thinking I'm so smart and so cute and so cool when really that's more kind of a dynamic of being a foreigner in Japan. So I had a great life there. I had such good friends. I had it was such great times. I mean, literally, 
I would go to a, like a, a restaurant and sit at the bar and start talking to people. And the pr proprietor of the bar would say, please come back as often as you like. Everything's on the house. And the reason is just the rumor that there was an American young blonde that could speak Japanese that comes in here would have more people coming in just because you might run into that phenomenon. I mean, it was it was because it wasn't Tokyo that I lived in. I lived in I lived in Fukuoka, which there weren't as many foreigners there. And so I was like, oh, no, I've got to get out of here. As, as wonderful as my life is, I can't get spoiled like this, this young in life. I'm, I just, it, 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 it's the funniest thing because people look at me like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no, really, you, you have to see this phenomenon, you know, to, <laughs> so I did, I didn't want to go back to the United States. So back in, in undergraduate, I had taken one semester of Russian and was always fascinated with Russian culture. And this was when the internet was just starting. And there was this thing called CompuServe and these things called <laughs> listservs. And so my friends and I were going on to these listservs and trying to see if there were opportunities to go to Russia. Uh, and I found an opportunity to enroll in the Pushkin Institute of Russian Language. May I say it in Russian? Institut Ruskovyzika imini Pushkina. And uh, that was uh, in Moscow. And it was like $600 for six months enrollment in the class, plus my flight to Moscow, plus a room, not board, but room, but a room. So that's, I left straight from Japan and went to Russia. And man, what a culture shock. Like, I will say that Japanese culture is on one end of the spectrum, Russian culture on the exact opposite end. American culture, fortunately, is somewhere in between, so I could find some equilibrium there. But I'll never forget when I first was invited to go to, like, to Russia, a Russian person's house for dinner. After dinner, we had a couple of drinks, and my friend said, take off your pants and get comfortable. And I said, <laughs> but Lena, you don't understand. If I took off my pants, I would be uncomfortable. Uh, but their idea was put on a long T-shirt and just hang out, you know, very casual. Whereas in Japan, it was all about being proper and, you know, always saying the right things and doing the right things at the right time. So, man, so I, can I confess? Absolutely. As much, as much as I sound cool, when I got to Russia, there was such a culture shock. And it was just a bit because I had lived in Japan for five years and become very Japanese. I hung out with, with Japanese people. I went for weeks without speaking English. So I get there to Russia and it's a bit overwhelming. So I went to NHK, which is the Japanese like PBS, like the Japanese public television. I went to NHK in Moscow and introduced myself and started hanging out with all the Japanese people in Moscow. When I first got there, it was just because that was all I knew. It was. <laughs> well, for people that have never experienced culture shock, right? Never, never taken the energy to live in another country. It, it is overwhelming. And, and you grasp for any little thing that, that reminds you of home. Um, my wife and I lived, our first year away from the U.S. was in Costa Rica, um, which is, is probably a step between, you know, uh, Russia and it's, it's, a, it's the closest step, right, away from American culture. It has a lot of Westernization and a lot of American things. Um, and so not near as, as extreme as Russia or Japan. And so, but like the movie theater, if we went and saw adult movies and, and not, I use that, I do that all the time. <laughs> Grown up movies instead of kid, animated movies and kids movies were all, were all dubbed. But the movies meant for adults were subtitled. And so you could go into the movie theater and you could sit there and the only difference while you're watching the movie 
was the subtitles across the bottom of the screen. Otherwise, you're experiencing a movie the exact same way you would at home. And so that was one of our safe zones that we would go to movies constantly. And we did that for 10 years that we lived in, in Latin America because the movie theater was, was the one place that just felt like home until the last few years. Then they started you know, dubbing and, and actually recording movies in, in multiple languages. And it got more complicated to go see the English versions. <laughs> um, but I understand the culture shock. And so you grab it, whatever little piece you can that feels like home. And you're like, ha, huh. you know, for my wife, it was finding macaroni, craft macaroni and cheese in the grocery store. Like she'd buy the entire row because <laughs> that, that was home. That was something that she identified with and she liked to have it in stock in our cupboard. So you, you grab it all. That's funny. Yeah, you're you're reminding me of a, of a hundred different things like that that I did. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So so for folks that haven't and and I I compare a lot of learning language to our entrepreneurial journey. And there's so much um, the willingness to make mistakes, right? The willingness to to, to goof it up. You, you have to be willing to you know learn a phrase and then go out and try it and goof it up five times before you get it right. And and so many people aren't willing to take that step because they feel like, oh, if I say it wrong. And and thankfully, the places that we've lived, people were very much like you said, the Japanese. Oh, you speak, you know, you're speaking Spanish, you're trying, you're doing this. Um, and I learned a whole different regard for people that are trying to learn a language. And, and Americans aren't very forgiving in that area. We're not very um, considering of immigrants. <laughs> when it comes to them learning English. And and I learned a lot in in learning a, a foreign language and living in another country of, you know what, we need to cut some people some slack. Well, the Russians were actually not very patient either. And I think that the United States and especially Moscow have in common the fact that we have a lot more immigration clearly than Japan does, right? But I I have my, my I remember about I was in in Russia for about a week and I had really only ever eaten kind of at the cafeteria at the at the the school that I was in and just kind of ventured around the neighborhood and one Saturday I was like, "No, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go grocery shopping, I'm going to do all this stuff." Well, back then this was right between like it was right when the so after the Soviet Union was during Yeltsin when he was president. So it, it was no longer the Soviet Union, but it wasn't fully not either. Like there was a lot of hope, like the store, the name of the store was store. Like it had a gray sign that said store. And if there was a line, like if you saw people standing in line, you would just go stand in line. And after a minute, you'd be like, what are we standing in line for? And it didn't matter because they was still, because this is the Russians actually used to say this under the Soviet Union, everybody had money, but there was nothing to buy. Now we have everything in the world available to buy, but not everybody has money. Hmm. And so when you were, so when, when there was a line, you just stood in it because you didn't know. And I, I remember being late for work one day. And when I was asked what happened, I said, oh, they were selling toilet paper in the street. And everyone said, oh, okay. Like that was a viable reason to be late because, you know, it was so hard to find. Yeah. So. I went to the, to the store this day and I was going to do the whole deal, but the way the stores were set up back then <clears throat> were there was a cashier and then there were little stations. So there was like the meat was over here and the grains and cans and then the, the breads and the fruits and vegetables. So you literally had to go stand in line, like at the fruits and vegetables and tell them what you wanted. And then they would tell you how much it was. And then you'd have to go stand in line at the cashier 
tell them how much you wanted to pay, get the receipt, and then go back and stand in line at the original place with your receipt to collect your goods. And you had to do this at multiple stations, even in a small grocery store, partially to keep 100% employment, right? So that everybody's got these jobs. So I told the lady what I wanted. She told me how much it was. I went to the cashier. I spoke. I said how much I wanted to pay. And she said, I don't understand you. Get out of here. So I go outside and I'm on the steps of this grocery store crying because only a week before I had been in Japan. And in Japan, all I had to do was open my mouth and everyone thought I was wonderful. They would give me free things just because I spoke Japanese. And these people won't even sell me some, you know, some groceries, right? <laughs> so I mean, it's just like you said about just taking that risk, right? So there was a lady outside selling eggs. So I read it said Yitsa eggs. It said Disyatak, you know, 300 rubles. And a Disyatak was like 10, right? Disyatak is 10. So I go, Adin Disyatak, Pajralsta. And she sold me the eggs and I bought the eggs and I got this renewed confidence. Like, if I can buy these eggs, then I can buy that other stuff too. So I, so I go back in. And by the way, there were three cashiers. I went back to the same one <laughs> and I enunciated as best I could this amount, right? And she sold me my, and she, she let me take spend the money. And it was like this great accomplishment. Like oh, I bought groceries today. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and the place where you can be really successful is ordering a pizza over the phone. Like if you can, if you can do, do that over the phone um, in Costa Rica, they didn't have addresses. So we're learning the language and then we're trying to do things. There's no addresses. So your address is based on the neighborhood you live in the street you're on two blocks this way, four blocks that way, and the color of the house. And so you have to give that whole explanation when you're trying to give directions to somebody to get to your house. And and then, of course, you know, hoping that it shows up. And then they drive down the street, and they just honk their horn, wait for whoever comes out to pay them, and they'll just sell it to whoever. So if your pizza doesn't show up, chances are your neighbor took it. <laughs> but but very similar. Like, and And I am so grateful for the people that were – just gracious enough to either listen twice, ask you again, what did you really want? Um, we had lost our keys to our house. And of course you feel insecure, like somebody's got a key to the house. And so you want to change the locks. And so we call the locksmith and we want to change the locks. I want to make sure he just didn't make a new key, you know, make a key of the same lock. I need new keys. And of course, the word in Spanish for new and nine are just one vowel apart. <laughs> and I was very persistent and I was very confident and and over and over said, you know, I need nine keys. Just make me nine keys. I know that I want nine keys. And he kept asking, are you sure you want nine keys? I mean, yes, I want nine. Give me nine keys. And, uh, and finally, I figured it out like, oh, wait, no, no, I want new keys. I only need two. And he's, he joked back and he just said, you know what? I thought maybe you wanted one for the dog and the cat and the fish. <laughs> and so he was really, he was really cool about it, but it's funny how you're, 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 a, I'm a hundred percent confident that I'm saying the right thing. I know this is it. I know I'm right. I know. And Oh no, I'm wrong. <laughs> and, and I'm glad these people aren't making complete fun of me. I'm sure he went home and told his family that he talked to this, you know, American idiot for an hour, <laughs> but but at least to my face, he was gracious and 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 helped me get to where I needed to be. And that happened a lot. Like 
when my wife and I first got to Columbia, where we lived for eight years, eventually, we we got on a bus and then the bus just stopped at the end of a line. And I swear all the time, other times we'd ridden it, it turned around and gone the other way and you get off on the opposite side of the highway. But this time it just stopped. And the bus driver came back, said, that's the end of the line. I'm like, um, no, <laughs> we, we need to be someplace else. And, you know, we've got a two-year-old baby with us. And here I am embarrassed in front of my wife. Like, um, it's dark outside. I have no idea where we are. And this bus driver's like, you're at the end of the line. Like, and thankfully, he just turned the bus around, drove back to where he wanted to let us off. And yay, we got off at the right spot. But that happened a lot. Like, people were very, very gracious. And for me, it was just a lesson in 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 honoring people that are making that effort, right? Honoring people that are, and so much on the entrepreneurial journey can be that same thing. And you just have to do it. You just have to try it. You just have to put yourself out there. Otherwise you don't know what's wrong, right? You can well, you have to ask, right? You didn't, you, you can't just get off the bus and go, okay, well, I hope for the best, you know, and <laughs> you and your wife and your two-year-old, right? Like you, you're at the mercy of these people. You realize I have to ask for help. And as an entrepreneur, you have to ask for the sale. You have to ask for the partnership, right? Absolutely. And, and you got to be okay. I, I think the problem is we, we've been trained to prepare and get it so perfect, right? So you spend all the time practicing in front of the mirror, practicing in front of the mirror. And it's it's like one of my language uh, learning opportunities. The, the guy was teaching a, a form of language. You learn a phrase each day and then you go out and you spend the whole day practicing it. And you sit down with language part, you learn the next phrase and you go and say it to 20 different people. And And his story was that he was learning from a guy with a lisp. But if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know, it, you're learning what sounds right to you. And then until you go out and you practice it, like you can stand in front of the mirror and you can say these words a hundred times, or you could use the Babel app and you could say these words a hundred times. But until you're face to face with somebody like you were with that, that grocery store clerk and you're at their mercy, right? They're either going to extend a little grace that says, oh, no, you, you, you missed that word here. Let me help you. Or they're going to say, I don't understand you. I'm out. Right. <laughs> and and so we hope we encounter more and more people. But the only way you learn language and the only way you learn what you need to do in your business is putting yourself out there and, and taking action and doing it. You know, I have a similar thing. When I first got to the language school, I was put in a dorm and my roommate, one was from Mexico City and one was from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Wow. And yeah. And the guy, when I first got there, there happened to be a young African man at the door and I made friends with him. Like literally I came in from the airplane, you know, and there he was, um, Abu. And he was my friend. He came to visit me every day. And so we all got to know each other in the storm. It was all this hodgepodge of people from all over the world. And after I was there for a week, I said, I'm going to speak only Russian. And I had literally only had a semester of Russian. I said, I'm going to speak only Russian. If I can't say it in Russian, I'm not going to say it. So, because my roommate from Mexico City, I was fortunate. My The two roommates, the one from Mexico City spoke Spanish. The one from Sao Paulo spoke Portuguese, 
English and Chinese. Wow. And we had a third roommate from China. Well, so the one girl could speak Chinese, English, and Portuguese. And Portuguese and Spanish, they could kind of get along and, and, and speak to each other. So we were we could rely on her to be our universal translator and all get along. And I was just, I'm not going to do it. We're, I'm going to speak Russian. I invite you guys to speak with me. And I feel like that's another kind of an, an example with an entrepreneurial thing, too. Like at some point, like if you're really going to do it, like that, I hear people say there's no plan B, right? You can't have a plan B, right? Um, and I think it's great when you have a spouse that's got a full-time job and you have a little leeway there. All of that's fine. But at some point as an entrepreneur, you have to say, you know, starting today, I'm going to rely only on my business income. You know, I'm not, you know, that's if I can't buy it with my business income, I'm not going to buy it. Starting today, I'm going to stop taking so many classes from other people and getting so many certifications. All that stuff's fine. But at some point, you have to say, I am never going to have learned enough to say I know it all and I'm 100% you know, ready. At some point, you just got to pull the trigger and say, and I can provide value to these clients and put myself out there. So um, I highly, that was one of my favorite moments was that day that I, I couldn't say anything. I mean, I Albu came to, to visit and I was just like, oh my goodness, Albu, I have nothing to say to you. You know, I know your name and that's about it. You know, that's it. Hi, hello. How are you? That's it. And I just moved from there. And like you said, every day, every day, and it was so much faster to learn that way when you, when you, cause when, cause, cause you know, they say total immersion, but it's hard to get total immersion because there's always people that speak English can, and there are always other it. experiences, right? Yeah, you can avoid it. Absolutely. We, <laughs> we had friends, we had friends that lived in Colombia far longer than we did and they didn't speak hardly any Spanish. Like, you know, they could do the typical tourist stuff, you know, but we were fully immersed and, and the areas that we were working in, you can't use English like that. I would not be able to have the impact that I was having. And, and that was a big part. We went there for the summer initially and I recognized right away my desperation to want to know their story. I want to know their story and I can't understand what they're telling me. That was my motivation to learn the language was because I want to be able to ask people their story and I want to be able to understand what's happening in their lives. And so that was the driver for, for us to, to, to just fully immerse ourselves in language learning and, and spend that year in Costa Rica, fully dedicated to learning language. But I will say, you know, our six hours a day, five days a week learning language and then the evenings, but I napped every single day. My brain was just fried from, from pumping in language. And I highly recommend if you have the opportunity, I, our culture, the one thing America does completely wrong in our education system is that we try to teach foreign language at high school to high school kids whose brains are already set in stone and hard as a rock or whatever. But my kids went to preschool and didn't have to learn language. They learned English and Spanish side by side and their brain didn't get overwhelmed. They didn't well, they napped every day because they're preschoolers, but <laughs> it, it's crazy to me that we understand this about the human brain and about how children learn and we don't take advantage of it. it 
It's well, in crazy. the United States, it's partly because we, you know, there's that joke that says if you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak three languages, you're trilingual. And if you speak one language, what do they call you? American. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I've heard that joke so many times, right? <laughs> uh, but it's partly because I, you know, we, we don't value language. I mean, I studied languages. I had no idea what how I would turn out, but I knew I took French in like middle school, and I, I you're I knew that I had a good ear. Now that I think about it, because they had me do some. French recitation. I did like I did a poem for the whole city or something. So evidently I had good pronunciation, but we conjugated verbs. Like how many times are you going to conjugate être? And then you find out when you go to France that they don't even use the proper, proper conjugated version. They shorten it all up when they speak anyway. Right. And I spent all these years conjugating verbs. That's all I swear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, Part of why we chose the Spanish culture was because we knew the value and, and how much Spanish was taking over. So when our kids came home, thankfully, we live very close to the to Denver and our kids were able to get back into Denver schools where they taught you know, Spanish for Spanish speakers. And so our kids were able to, to participate in in language learning that matched you know, their experience. And I'm a little surprised the schools even let you let them do that because then we we don't mean I I I don't think we mean to segregate but then it's like well you don't you know you speak English why would you want to do this Spanish program or you know what I mean because again we I don't think we value being bilingual and trilingual oh we certain not the way other and like you said in 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 Colombia when we when I spoke people were like oh yeah that's not, they love to hear you speak in their mother tongue and and it it created an opportunity for relationship, you know, and, and here we, I think we dishonor people that are putting out the effort, right. Especially immigrants who are working 50 hours a week to support their family. And then on top of it, trying to take time to learn, to learn our language. And, and, and I know how complicated that is. I do. And so, you know, honor those people and have conversations with them and help them along in that journey and, and be a little more forgiving. I think we have room to be more gracious. Yeah, the minute we hear an accent somehow, what is that? You know, I, I don't know. I don't presume to know what any of you think, but when you hear someone with, with, that has an accent, when they answer the phone or when you're, you know, standing in line talking to them, think about what your first impression of that is, right? Mm -hmm. Just because they have an accent, first of all, doesn't mean they don't have excellent language skills, right? Mm -hmm. Because accents are harder to lose um, than languages are to learn. And secondly, you know, the, instantly that tells you they speak more than one language. So this whole judge, if, if the judgment is that they're less than intelligent because they have an accent, wait a minute, the fact they had to have an accent and are speaking English indicates that they already, that they're, that they speak more than one language, you know? Yeah. So good. We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by Add Value to Life Coaching. Want to learn the mindset secrets of successful entrepreneurs that have been shared on our podcast? Well, you can get them for free at addvaluemindset.com, addvaluemindset.com. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. So good. All right. So obviously you have a great deal of confidence now. It took a lot of confidence to, to, to develop. How, how did you develop your confidence? You know, it's still there. It's, st I, I, you know, I still am. It's, I wonder as, as we look at ourselves as entrepreneurs, um, I told you I started out teaching these, these Fred Pryor seminars, which best experience ever. I highly recommend it, but it doesn't pay well. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, and that's okay. Um, it's, you know, it, it pays as well as any entry level new entrepreneurial type, you know, cause you're, you're, you're not, you don't, you're not an employee or you're, you're, you're an independent contractor. You get paid per gig. Right. Um, but then when, when you're getting that very small percentage of the, of the sale of this training that you're teaching or this talk that you're doing, then you get this idea of what your time is worth and what your, you know, what, what, what your value is worth. So whether, you know, I was a speaker, speaker trainer, right? So there's kind of a general going rate in the world for how much a training seminar is worth to a corporation or a government agency, right? And then imagine less than 10% of that is what you actually get, um, you know, as the speaker. So then all of a sudden you meet somebody who says, oh, I'd love to hire you. And now you're the one who's supposed to say the full price of the going rate of how much that's worth. And, and it's really hard. You know, like I remember telling, so, and I, I mean, I felt guilty the whole time and I'm like, okay, wait, I shouldn't feel guilty because that's how much they pay for me every day. Every day that I do what I do, people are paying that amount. I'm just not getting it. It's going through the system and keeping the lights on. You know, I, I, I'm not mad at anybody for, you know, paying people what they're willing to work for and, you know. But I it, like now that I'm pretty much entirely those gigs and getting the full price of the gigs and earning every bit of it, because, man, all the work that goes into <laughs> selling and creating and, and all of that. OK, that it's it's worth every bit of the other 90 percent of the gig. But I still find myself sometimes you know, I'm staying up all night. I'm doing this crazy stuff. And my friends are like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, oh, well, because they're paying me $5,000 for this. And they're like, yeah, yeah. They were paying $5,000 for those other ones that you didn't stay up all night for too, <laughs> you know? So in the end, partially, I believe that one of the ways to get confidence um, is to really take a look at what people are paying for what you do and what the value is to them for what you do, right? Because you talked about what a difference you made and how many changes, you know, you made. So like, you know, think about these conversations people have about, you know, what would it be worth to you to have a family that communicates and really understands each other and, 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 and a family that works because maybe before they hired you as a coach, it didn't. Right. Um, so partly part of it is just really looking at the fact and, and looking at the fact that think about all the, the, like what we pay for. And I, you went to, you started at confidence and I went to pay. So, and that's fine because kind of, as I think about my own journey with confidence, I think that the thing that finally helped me see that I was finally kind of have more arrived there with the confidence was when I could ask for what I was worth and then start looking at other prices and going, I can't work for that. You know, doesn't matter that I worked for that for 15 years. I, I don't work for that now. I work for this now. So for me, it was just, that was, you know, the outward manifestation of the confidence piece, right? But think about what we pay people for cleaning our home. Think about what we pay people for, you know, driving us somewhere. Think about what we pay people for all kinds of kind of more menial types of things and how much more so, nothing wrong with that, but how much more so if you're, if you have an intangible type thing, like a coach or a, or a training or a speaking type situation, right? To be inspired, to get an aha 
to get um, a, a method that finally helps you change a habit that you've been struggling with for years, right? How I mean, part of it's really looking at how much that's worth and partly just the idea that, guess what? I'm completely dedicated to you, my client. All I, Like right now, you and I, we have nothing else that we're doing right now besides talking to each other for the benefit of those of you who are listening. That's all. That's We have no other, other agenda right now than to just share so that we can grow and learn and create this space, right? Where we can all get ahas. How much value is there in that? So to mm -hmm. me, it's, it's about looking at, it's, it's about looking at, at the value, right? Of what you provide and the value of one human being paying full attention to another human being. Oh, so good. Yeah. And, and value is tied to price and to confidence, right? When you finally have the confidence to say, this is my value and stand and stand on that. It elevates your product. It elevates your service to that level. So that's that's outstanding. So you mentioned um, you know, being able to deliver, right? And 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 obviously selling seminars, selling um, these courses. How, how important is character development for an entrepreneur? Wow. So it's so funny that I think. When you see people perform, for example, like a like a, a musician, they say, oh, well, you look like you're having fun out there. And when I'm training, people say the same kind of thing. Oh, you look like you're having fun out there. So when you say it's, it's funny, but when you say character, I feel like the way I'm able to express character and convey character is that like if I'm really having fun out there then that means I'm in integrity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> so when uh, an organization, when someone contacts me and says, we're having this situation with our employees or we're having this situation with our managers and, you know, we, we thought we'd bring in some training for this or that or the other thing. Immediately, I, I, I listen to their situation and be having been, I've been doing corporate training for 22 years. So, and I have one of my, I, the strengths finders, my number one strength is um, connectedness um, and strategic. So the way my brain works is when and so 22 years as a trainer, strategic and connectedness. So when somebody tells me about an issue they're having, my brain goes, ooh, and I'm able to see these employees. I'm able to imagine like the organizational culture, what's going on with their bosses, what's going on with the customers, what's going on in the community. Like my brain starts to see all these connections. And then I'm able to start like imagining, oh, I'll bet that what that they that they're losing track of their priorities and they need to set some boundaries. I, I, I'm presuming that what's happening a lot of the time is that they're afraid their bosses are going to be unhappy with them and they don't realize that what the boss really wants is for them to be a little bit more this way. Yeah, and everything. It's just so wild because you know this. I don't tell my I don't actively tell my clients this, but you guys all know I've never worked in corporate America. I am training the the employees and supervisors and leaders of corporate America, and I have never worked a job. And <laughs> so fantastic, right? So so partly people would want to say, well, how can you know what's going on with these people having not worked it? Well, guess what? 
I've been, I've not, I've not worked in corporate America, but I've been in corporate America. I've taught over 4,000 training seminars. I go into organizations. People tell me what's going on. They tell me how they feel. They tell me the impact of what they're doing. So I'm, like, imagine this, imagine that the 99.9% of the time that you're working in corporate America, that you're just doing the job. I haven't done any of that. But the point one percent of the time that you're actually seeing what's going on and you're actually trying to problem solve and be creative. I've seen all that. OK, so I just got to do only that part of it because that's the part I need to be able to come in as a trainer. Right. So when so when so I so, you know, so so we, I go in there and I, and I and I get that that story. And to me, the integrity, the character piece comes in in that now. And I can't say I've not. Like if some comp- organization says we need business writing training and I say, do you have any particular reason why? And they say, no, we just need business writing training. I don't say, well, I'm sorry, I won't accept this gig because I need for my character's sake to understand the underlying. Pro- no, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll sell a gig to somebody. I mean, it's never going to hurt anybody to take a business writing class. Right. <laughs> but when but when but when the character part that really matters really comes in, it's that I'm really there. And think about it for your business, whatever your business is. It's that moment when you yeah, sometimes you just do the gigs and sometimes people just buy your thing and you don't know why they bought it and you do it anyway. And that's fine. And that's awesome because you have to have clients like that or you're, you're, you know, you'll be exhausted. But those ones where you're really like, wow, I really see a problem and I really see how I can solve it. I really see a connection and I get super invested in, wow, there's an opportunity here. And, you know, maybe 80% of the people in my class, they'll just have fun in the class and pick up a couple of tips. And that's great. But then maybe a few people will really get like super inspired. Right. And something, something different will come out of it. So to me, that's, that's kind of where it is. It's where you, you get the gig, you, you, you do the thing, but you've always got your eyes open for, you know, how can I really help, right? What kind of a real difference can I make there? And if one in how many of our clients every month or, or quarter or year, you know, you get that kind of a thing out of, then man, all of a sudden, like the fact that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to hustle for every gig and you, just because you got the good one, you can only like, like celebrate for about a half a day and then you've got to get the next thing in your pipeline and it gets really old, right? It makes it all worth it. And it may, and, and, and it, it, it helps you, you kind of see that um, the big companies are there to fit the majority of the need, but the small businesses like this, we're the ones that are there to innovate, right? To find the real, uncover that real thing that maybe, maybe people wouldn't have talked about. Like, I think right now, the fact that as, as a nation, we're more open to like talking about our mental health. We're more open to like vulnerability. Like I can think of like vulnerability, Brene Brown, like if Brene Brown had never come out with her books and her Ted talks, would people be talking about vulnerability as much as they are now? And if they weren't talking about vulnerability and being more vulnerable, then who would be more miserable, who, who, who would be less happy in their life and less fulfilled you know, as a result of it. So I can literally link sometimes like solutions to problems in society to that one little entrepreneur person or that one author, right. Or that, right. That, that's that, that person, that influencer, right. Who started talking about the thing that nobody was talking about. Mm, so, good. so good. You, you use the you language, use the language being being integrity. integrity. What is being, what is being integrity? integrity? 
So I've got to say, integrity is one of those things that's a big, big thing for a lot of people. And I'm not that person that says, like, you know, and I don't mean that I don't have integrity, but I just mean everybody's got their values, right? And it's not one of my top five or anything that I think about. But but then I've always been told by people, oh, well, you're comfortable in your own skin and wherever you are, you're you. So I think maybe it's not a big buzzword for me because maybe it comes more naturally. Um, and that's and that's partly because I have been an entrepreneur my entire career. You know, I didn't I wasn't ever torn between this or that. Right. Um, but the word integrated. Right. So integrity comes from the word integrated. So um, one of the my favorite exercises to do is have you think about all the different areas of your life that matter to you. And, you know, you'll see this wheel of life where it talks about work versus relationships and spirituality and health and all these things. Right. Even within that wheel of life, there's a couple of areas there that I, they're not my you know, like if I focused on everything on the wheel of life, I would already be overwhelmed. So even within this wheel of life, there's going to be three or four maybe five that are your key, key, key focus areas. So as an entrepreneur, as a, as a coach, as a speaker, as a, um, as a business person, think about for me, this integrity thing is like, think about what you really care about. And the people say your why, and I always laugh and say, I don't have a why, but then I do, you know, um, (laughs) But okay, I get it. So I'm sorry. Let me say the why thing. Because people say, think of your why, and everybody thinks your why has to be some altruistic why. Like, uh, it ha- your why has to begin with, I want to help people fill in the blank, right? And it's okay if your why is, like for me, my why is adventure. My why is, man, new places, new things, new people, learning, growing, like that's my why. But then it can't help but end up in helping people because then I see unfulfilled people who are just doing what other people have told them to do their whole life. And so I have a life coach certification training school, the professional coach Academy. Why? Because there are these people that they worked and they did whatever it was that they needed to do, but they're, they've always coached people. People have always come to them for advice and they're a natural born coach. And I feel passionate about my goodness. Why not get paid to do that? Why do you have to go to the to an office or a factory every day and spend eight hours a day manufacturing a physical product because the market will buy that and then only on your free time bother to spend time on what you're really passionate about? So to me, integrity is about finding what really is is wonderful. For me, I just want to have I just want to have adventures. I just want to meet people and do new things. And so if I'm not doing that, I'm not happy. And when I'm not doing that, I'm out of integrity because I'm a being for whom that's what, that's where it's at. So where is it at for you? Right. That's integrity for me. I like that. I mean, honoring who you are. So good. What have mentors meant to you It's funny, I grew in that wonderful environment of other trainers that were doing the Fred Pryor seminars and doing some things on their own and that sort of thing. And we all kind of mentored each other. So, you know, it wasn't like, because we're not employees, so we don't have, you know, like 
a boss, it was just, okay, here, the, you know, you get scheduled to teach a training class. And partly we were mentored by our, the people in our seminars, right? Like I always tell people, if you don't know the answer, then somebody in the room does. And so when somebody asked a question, I said, that is a great question. Who here's got an experience uh, that you can relate about how you handled that? And please, that's not, a, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. That's called facilitation and facilitating them learning from each other can sometimes be far Far better than being the sage from the stage telling people stuff, right? So it's so interesting because I think even the thought of mentor is somebody who's like older or more experienced than you, that's figured it out, that tells you the process. And what I've found is that I've always been in this wonderful mix of people who were trying to figure it out as we go, knowing that we can, we're constantly recreating ourselves and recreating what we do. And I remember a bunch of us trainers would get together and we would say, we would like talk late into the night and we'd be like, we need to do this more often. And multiple times we got little mastermind groups together, you know, every Tuesday night we'd get on a conference call. And then one of the things that we started to do, this is crazy, but we started to get together and have our own little like symposium, so to speak, like the training companies that we work for would have one of these annual events. Like, and we said, well, we want to have our own. So we all rented, I remember the, like we had an unofficial one where we went to a guy's house and we spent the weekend and there were about eight of us. And we just sat there and we taught each other what we do when we learn how to be better at what we do out of our, out of our, out of our own pockets. Right. Um, and then we, we, one time we said, let's make it a bigger deal. And so we rented out a whole bed and breakfast in Charleston. So, um, it didn't cost anything to go, but you just had to stay in that bed and breakfast and pay for your room. Well, if we rented out the whole bed and breakfast, then we could have the common areas, right? So then in the common areas of the bed and breakfast, your price of admission was you have to give it to our presentation, teaching the rest of us something that we need to know to be successful doing what we do. So that, we did that twice. It is called the Charleston Challenge. Then a couple of people picked it up and started doing it in Dallas and they called it B Events. Then I picked it up and started doing it. We call it the Star Marketing Summit. Do we still do it twice a year? That's so, yeah. yeah. So, so think about mentoring as not necessarily being that someone's teaching you, but this opportunity to co-create, right? Oh, collaboration is so powerful. What a great way to, to build each other up. <clears throat> so oh, you mentioned something really good in there and I'm going to lose it. So I'm going to ask you off the weird, what is your favorite meal? Favorite Favorite food. So I am a, the, uh, I'm in this thing called the Hash House Harriers. I was looking over there because I have a necklace that's got the name on it. So there's a group called the Hash House Harriers. They're a drinking club with a running problem. Uh, there's... <laughs> There's literally hundreds of thousands of hash house areas in the world. It's a it's a international running group. And so they give you get a name and my name is Sampler. Like that's my hash name as as a as the in this running club. So I sample everything. So once I've tried something, then most people are like, oh, I love that. And they want to go back and have it again. But if I've tried it before, even if I loved it, I still want to try something new and something different. So I'm going to answer your question as I have most of your questions a little off the off the off the, the wall. I love trying weird things. And in Japan, 
if you like trying weird things, Japan is the best place in the world because they love trying weird things. So we, I remember like they, you know, they would, they eat whale, they eat raw horse, they eat raw chicken liver, raw beef liver. I tried all of it. They do this thing where they catch the fish live and they chop it up and you eat it while it's still moving. Right. <laughs> uh, they had this, uh, this certain little minnow it was like a little minnow like fish in this river in, in the city I lived in. And one time a year, these minnows came through this river, the Muromi River in Fukuoka, Japan. And they would give you this eight course meal made up of these fish. And course number one was they were, they gave you a bowl of these fish swimming live and you would catch them and eat them. Uh, live. I remember being on a vacation and they had a cage of snakes, these little, these long, thin snakes. And you would point to the snake you wanted. They would pull it out of the cage, chop its head off, drain its blood, mix it with shochu and you would drink it. They would pull its heart and its liver out while the heart was still beating and you would eat it. And then they would fricassee the, the snake for you, right? Like I just every day, I, I constantly was looking for those kinds of weird adventures. So I can't say any of that was the best tasting meal I ever had, but boy, was it fun. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly you should have been on fear factor because it sounds like you're a perfect candidate for <laughs> their, uh, their challenges. <laughs> just, just do something that's never been done before. And I'm in. Exactly. <laughs> I, I love it. I think, I think that's fantastic. How have how have you used routines? How have routines helped you in, in your development and in, and in what you do for others? So I, again, I'm a really different one for that. So I've considered even writing a book called Success by the Seat of Your Pants I because it. I live life by the seat of my pants. I'm that person that I just scramble and I just like, like throw it together at the last minute. And, it, and I, I literally remember without realizing what she had said, a, 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 one of my like coach certification graduates, I was talking to her on the phone and she goes, oh, I met this woman who was kind of like you in that she's a hot mess and she's still very successful. <laughs> I was like, okay, you just called me a hot mess who's still very successful. So, um, so I love that you ask about routines because as if, me, if I'm the adventurer, the sampler, then obviously there's a part of me that wants to avoid routines, right? And if I'm going to live by the seat of my pants, though, I've also had people recognize if you're going to live by the seat of your pants the way you do, you actually have to be pretty organized, right? Because if you're not, if you're not incredibly organized, you can't just throw stuff together the way you do and just say yes to everything and just run out the door. Right. So for me, it's more this. It's more like I think about um, because that connection thing. Right. So I think about all the things I might need in order to accomplish a particular thing. Right. And I gather those things all up together and I containerize them all nicely. And they're always, always right there, kind of like packed in a suitcase. Right. So that I can go um, boom. Right. Um, and I'm always looking for like that one thing, that one tool that can do like so many different things. Right. So that's a huge, huge piece of it. And then another one is content. So no matter what you do for a living, there's part of what you do has to do with content, like ideas, like intellectual property, right? So I have an incredibly well-organized um, filing system of all my various slides and topics and talks, right? And um, 
part of it's in my head, but I've really like little by little, you know, really tried to catalog it to where I'm able to go. When someone says I need like that thing I told you where they tell me what they need, I'm almost able to go, okay, there's that little, you know, six slide section there on attitude that I want to pull in over here. Oh, and then there's that cool video that I made where I pour ice water all over the floor. I want to pull that in there. Right. So what the, the, I think a huge, huge thing is recognizing that you've got huge amounts of intellectual property and beginning to recognize that having that floating around in your head is not the thing. So figure out a format. I use mind maps a lot. I put things on slides. I write things up as just little, little paragraphs, but your intellectual property, when people talk about like selling their business, like a lot of times people can sell a business and the only thing they're really selling is their client list and their intellectual property. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So what inspires you? So for me, when I look at the world, I easily get discouraged by some of the unfairness I see about how people are treated in the world and some of the ways that I feel like society, we've become very greedy, like literally like, you know, I see the chronicle of when they actually started saying greedy is good. And, you know, like that all of a sudden, like being making money off of something then justifies whatever you had to do to make money off of it and rich equals good and poor equals bad or whatever is happening, you know, and that's, that's, that's our reality now, maybe 20 years from now, there'll be a whole new different unfairness. Right. Right. Um, so when I see those things, I get just super, super discouraged. But then the fact is that just like you and I, and everyone who's listening, we learn by talking about stuff and, and hearing other people's stories and it sparks something in us, then I feel like the fact that there's stuff going on that upsets me, the fact that I'm upset about it is really good because it means that the word is out that it's happening, that people don't like it, right? That I don't like it and that people are starting to rally against it, right? Mm. So what really, really inspires me is when I'm able to see one little tiny thing I can do, right? To let humanity, fairness, you know, um, love, whatever you want to call it. I think it's all the same thing, regardless of your, your dogma, like to let that win, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's happening right during uh, the pandemic, um, when people, nobody's wanting to work these jobs anymore. Right. So that's, a, there's a, there's a, I, what inspires me is that there's a beautiful thing in that, right? Because in that, the only thing that can come out of that is a new way of working and treating employees, right? More efficient systems within organizations that allow them to not um, use as many low wage employees in the way that they have new ways of um, helping people feel welcomed and, and cared for in their jobs, et cetera. So, um, so I think clouds inspire me because it's my job to see the silver lining and look for what does it take to get to the other side of the cloud, right? Mm, so good Thank <laughs> you for, for sharing at that vulnerable level because it, it does matter. And, and until people that are upset about something are willing to take action, the anger is 
is useless, right? We can we can complain about things on on social media. We can complain about things to our friends, but if if the complaining doesn't drive us to action to do something different, it's it's only adding to the cloud. And you don't have to be the person that's like, I'm a speaker, right? So I should do something in the speaking and training world about that. I don't need to go, you know, whatever the, the political people, let the political people do what the political people do. Let the people that stand in front of the bulldozer do what they do. You know, you don't have to change what you do, but within where you are and who you are, what does the action look like? Oh, that's even better. Yeah, so good. For, for me, it's just, so we have a path that goes from our house to a park and, and back, and it's got a little creek next to it. It's, it's just, it's a joy in the middle of the suburbs to just have this path. And the last block is a new development. They just like right behind our house, there's a new development going in and they put in a new path and they just planted these new trees literally a month ago. And somebody cut one of the trees down and took it home as a Christmas tree and I'm just stunned. And and for me, I'm like, okay, I'm angry, but now what am I going to do about it? And so I, I wrote down the phone number of the developer. And my plan is I'm calling them and I'm saying, I want to replace that tree. Like <laughs> I'm angry and I, I'm not satisfied with just being angry at one of my neighbors for stealing this tree. I want to replace it. And so, so do something with, with, with your anger. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate that. Well, and who knows how much value one planted tree will have the ripple effect of that. Absolutely. All right. So you love play and fun. How, how important is play and fun? Like how, how much of your schedule is play and fun? How much of my schedule is play and fun? Oh, it's crazy. So a lot. So um, people that though I work, when I work, I work really hard. And so I get people who say, well, what do you ever take time for yourself? And I'm like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> but um, so, so first of all, doing something that you love, right? But second of all, like I'll travel. And when I'm done with my training, I don't go to my room and order room service, right? I go out into whatever town I am. I go listen to a band. I go sing karaoke. I go have a meal someplace. I go for a walk. I meet locals. They tell me the next place to go, right? So every single day, there's something new or different that you could do. And one of the things we found when the world went virtual is there's all kinds of things you can do online, little virtual things, things that you can listen to, right? Things that you can learn. So gosh, one thing, that thing that you said about learning, using the, the phrase every day, right? So what if there's like a, you know, and again, it depends on your values, like, I value fun and I value uh, new and learning and, and new things. But whatever that thing is that matters to us, what if we had just one of those things every day, one little tiny thing every day, right? So good. All right. Young entrepreneurs just sat across from you. You guys just ate the raw minnows together and and you're going to leave them with Sherry's words of wisdom. What would you encourage them with? Step number one. Whenever you are stuck and jumbled, dump all your thoughts out. Just dump them all out around you randomly, just on some kind of a surface like a whiteboard or a mind map or a, a, I'm a mind mapping person. And just then take a look at what's there and then start to subgroup and kind of put like things together. That's all organization is. Think about your kitchen. 
you know, all the silverware is together, all the glasses are together. Just start subgrouping, looking, putting like things together and then start kind of fleshing it out, looking at what's missing. And it's the funniest thing, but the answers, it's almost like when they put the tea leaves and you're supposed to tell your fortune in the tea leaves. Um, I'm going to absolutely say that I believe that you and all the forces that help you know the answers to whatever it is that you need. All you need to do is see it. And a lot of the time when it's in here, there's too many voices in here. It's too jumbled. There's a lot of emotion. It's overwhelming. Dump things out. Start to subgroup things. Start to look at your inner things somewhere outside of you. And I think you'll be amazed at how much it makes sense. Hmm. So good. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time today, sharing so much wisdom and fun with us. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you at addvaluemindset.com. That's addvaluemindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. addvaluemindset.com. In our next episode... Grady Gibbs teaches me about some of the challenges in our current healthcare system and how there may be a large movement of doctors into entrepreneurship. He talks about costs and how the current system has too many middle players. And when the employers start seeing they have the power as the payer, it will start to generate change and create new options.